and welcome to the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. This is episode 29. I'm Ross Anderson, and I'd like to start off by apologising for my slightly croaky voice and any potential coughs or squeaks you may hear from me. If you're aware of what happened over the weekend, I'm sure you'll understand why. If you're not, stick around and we'll fill you in on part two. Before then, however... I'm lucky because John and I have a very special guest who will hopefully let me rest a wee bit and do all the talking with what a great career he's had and some brilliant stories to go with it. Today we're joined by someone we've been chatting about wanting on the pod for a long while now, so it's a privilege to have you on here, Rab McHenry. Rab, how are you, mate? Very good. Thank you for inviting me. Well, I think we've got to start because we're chatting the last two weeks about you, Rab, where you've just been on the Golden Sands, some fantastic rugby going on and I'm sure a lot of festivities and and by all accounts from the photos and everything we saw, it looked fantastic. So so how was another experience out there in Spain for, for the beach rugby? Yes, uh, Magaluf, the Mallorca beach rugby is a, a thing that should be on everybody's bucket list. The thing for me this year was particularly special because it was my 10th time. I first got invited out 2011 and it was the year that I actually couldn't go for the weekend because it was the year I, I retired from the from police so I had a massive weekend planned for that weekend as it was so however I was first in the queue for the following year since then that it's been pretty special so I've been going around uh, a lot of the clubs uh, with my Mallorca Beach Rugby game shirts on and refereeing the the Spice Cup at Newton Stewart against Shire every year with the Magaluf uh, beach rugby gear. It's all in pink, so it's, you can't miss me in, in the middle. And it's uh, just promoting it all the time and trying to encourage as many of the local sides to be there. And uh, once you're out there and you actually see the local faces out there, they just they just love it, just love it. For for maybe those who don't know, including myself, actually, I don't know a hell of a lot about it. What kind of competition is it? Is it you know? Is it like just British teams that go? How many how many teams even go in the end? You know, it's is it quite a big spectacle that that people might not expect? And and kind of how does the whole thing run? You wouldn't expect, or you wouldn't know how big this tournament is. It's a European Beach Championships men and women, and the, the women's side of it is, is growing massively. But right at the start, there's maybe 50, 60 men's teams plus a few women's teams. But now it's grown and grown to this year, I think there was 83 teams in total from all over Europe. And it's a thing that's used around the islands, particularly around Mallorca. There are teams go around specifically just playing. Facilities are all there. The pitches are set up to be 25 metres by 20. doesn't seem very big. Five on the pitch and five waiting at the side. Whoever uses their replacements the best usually wins. And that was my big thing to Annan this year, the Annan ladies that went. When I met them there, and they'd never been before. They didn't have a coach with them. It was just giving them that wee bit of information just to help them see how they got on. So when we set up, we go out there on the Thursday night. And the Friday morning, we set up, we as in the referees, there's 24 of us, and we set the whole thing up. Now, there's a group of Scottish referees 
were called the Thistles, and there's a group of referees from the Leicestershire Referee Society, and they're called the Foxes. So between us, we've got this brand of uh, kit that we have all branded called the Fox and Thistles Referee Society. So we all go out there, set the pitches up on the Friday. The tournament, you get register your team for the tournament on the Saturday. You play a round robin on a Saturday. There's usually eight teams in a pitch. The winner of the, that group goes forward to the cup. Runner-up goes to the shield, bowl, etc. And the Sunday, after the party on the Saturday night, people are meant to turn up at 12 o'clock to register their teams. Generally, most of them do. And then they have the finals. Whoever gets through, like Annan, for example, this year, they won their section. So they went through forward to the cup. So the eight pitches that were set up, so all the eight winners go to the cup. The next eight go to the bowl, the next eight go to the shield, so on. So it becomes busy. So if you jump forward to all the games being played, I refereed the European final for the women this year. I did it last year as well, but this year. And there's maybe, with the, the surrounds, we have the barriers, plastic barriers around the pitch. And there's maybe up to five, 6,000 people around the arena. It is the noisiest arena you try to referee in. You have your touch judges, and a lot of it's mainly with eye contact to each other because most of the time you can't hear yourself speak, never mind your Acme Thunderer whistle. Once you come off there, because the bars, that are terraces of bars that look down onto the pitch that sponsor the event, they are absolutely packed, and the, the noise is just phenomenal. For those that are obviously listening to this, you won't be able to see... John's face. John, when the numbers, when Rab told us the numbers there, it looked like Gregor Townsend had called you this morning and told you that you're in the Scotland squad. Are you a bit shocked? That That is incredible. 5,000 people is a hell of a lot of people. And if you're only on, what did you say, Rab, 20 by 25? Yeah, just it's of 25 metres. We put the tapes out to mark out the, the like a normal pitch marking. And then it's two metres for a score area. So obviously you've got your score line, two metres, and then you've got your dead ball line. And then, as I say, five aside, five on the pitch. So if you're going flat out on that sand, which is incredibly deep, so the amount of people that try and run as quick as they can on the sand tend to fall flat on their faces. But obviously the, the, the tackling's allowed. It's all, any, any penalties, if you like, are all free kicks. Everything's free kicks. So there's no... Scrumming, there's no line out. Everything, if it goes into touch, it's restarted with a free kick, and it's always touch and pass. So for the first game, people will tap and run. So we'll stop them and say, right, this time I'll let you away with that. It's tap and pass. And then this year, though, the the rules, it's under the IRB rules, and the IRB rules is that we're trying to get away from a jackaline. So like your number seven getting over the ball, over the tackle situation. This year, for the first time, to prevent a lot of previous injuries, we were not allowing that to happen. So the tackle situation would happen. The people had to roll away from the tackle situation and the ball could be played. So it was allowed to be played off the floor, but it had to be played right away. And if you don't use the ball 
if it gets held up in like a mall situation and if it's not used within the count of three, the ball is turned over. It's as quick as that. And it is so fast. But how how long how long are the games? A massive four minutes each way. I was going to say, because I've played some beach rugby, not in the golden sands of Spain, but in, in the golden sands of Ayrshire. And <laughs> and it is, it is a fair slog to be, to be playing that. Nowhere near 5,000. I'm just I'm picturing that what what we did at Turnbury, and then picturing five thousand people around that pitch. That is that's going to be some atmosphere. It's basically, yeah. you're playing in a nightclub almost. Correct, and obviously there's a few beers being had by a few people round about, so that yeah. uh, helps them being a bit more vocal. But one fantastic figure that the, the, the organizer there, she organizes all the flights, the transfers, people into their hotels and then tallies up all the money brought into the local community at the end. And last year's figure, everybody brought in 8.5 million euros just for that one weekend. That is a lot of partying. 8.5 million. It's just astonishing, you know, the amount of people that just go to all the hotels are parked, the, the, the clubs are parked, and then we have our own... The referees, we don't just referee, we are actually organise everything. And then uh, we have a, a fancy dress party on the Friday to welcome everybody. And this year was the superheroes party. And we all as referees wore the Doddy Weir shirts because obviously not all superheroes wear capes, do they? John, I don't know when your next structure committee meeting is, but I'm hoping you're bringing this up whenever it is. Get that in the books for us. Never mind that. I'm thinking DG Rugby podcast. Let's take a select squad over there and, and rock the, the beach rugby. Rab, you mentioned that obviously you were out there because you were doing the doing the refereeing. And that kind of brings us to how you got to where you are today. So what has led you all the way up until standing on the golden beaches of, of Majorca with 6,000 people around you? What was the what was the pathway that took you here, the rugby pathway, your playing days, your coaching days, your refereeing days? You might not believe this, but I was actually at Kirkubri Academy. He played football, he played rugby. It was the same people that played in every sport. But, when, but then I was more into football, to be honest. And when I left school, I was actually playing on S-forms with Kilmarnock at football. And I came home one Wednesday night, thought I'd do a wee bit extra fitness work. I always loved the rugby. Went along to Stuartry just to see how they're getting on. So I thought the seconds was a bit short. So I'll, I'll play with the second. Typically, I got injured. I got a knee in the face by a, a certain famous fullback for Stuartry days. Ended up uh, injured. And so Kilmarnock released me and I went to Ayr, who sent me out on loan to Glen Afton. And then Glen Afton back down here. I joined the police and uh, played for a local side called Heathall Harps. For a couple of seasons, I went into into hospital for a, a stomach complaint, and then met in with a couple of boys from the rugby. And after I came out, I said I met up with them again. They said, "Come along to Dumfries and uh, get fit by playing rugby with us." Dumfries in them days had actually four teams, so we played with the fourth team. So I was playing at fullback, keeping out of the way, of course. We got a penalty, and uh, I said, "Well, I could kick it." So I kicked the ball over the over the bar and we got a penalty or, and after that it was like where's that fella that can kick the ball for a mile you know so in them days if you could uh, 
if you could catch the ball and if you kick the ball for a mile and run like the wind, you were in, you know, because I've never, ever seen somebody too fast at rugby. That started fourths up. Eventually, two or three seasons went by, fourth, third, seconds, and then eventually made my debut in the first. But just at that point, I then got moved through work through to Stenrar. So went to Stenrar, and I thought I was the, the quickest and whatever. But when you go to Stenrar, went to Wigginshire, everybody was bigger, everybody was quicker, and it was the standard was unbelievably much higher. So that was in the old Division 2. Eventually took a, a season or so to make a debut up at Kirkcaldy, winning uh, 17-0 at half time, and I thought, this is easy. And then uh, we got pumped 51-17 in the second half. One of our players had got sent off, and then so that was the end of that. But that's where it all started. And then nine seasons later, playing at the Shire, and that was it was fantastic playing at the Shire. There were some fantastic players, and and how come a lot of these boys never got recognised for their performances? I'll, I will never know. But while I was there, I actually, as I was coming to the end of playing, playing with the twos, captain of the seconds. And then I went through and got my coaching badges, levels one, two, and three, and the old style. Once I got them, I then got moved back to Dumfries with a view of taking over the Dumfries coaching. And when a first night I appeared, eight players had turned up. I think Dumfries were maybe now West 5B or something like that. So they really dropped down. However, one person who was there that night was John Steele. And John said to me, well, you've sort of tried to ref the game anyway from 10, so why don't you take up the whistle? And he would come and watch me and took a few notes and stuff and gave us some pointers. And really, it just sort of took off when I got registered with the West Society and then gradually started doing some quite, well, decent games, local games in particular. And doing as many games as you can, whether it's a a Saturday or a Sunday or a school afternoon, just getting involved as much as you can. And it wasn't until I was refereeing Newton Stewart versus Marr, up at Marr, on a, on a West 3 horrible day up at Marr. The wind was howling and raining. And Newton Stewart were playing with the wind and rain. And in 33 minutes, always remember, they were 33 nil up. And then... The wind stopped, the rain stopped, and the sun came out. And then it changed ends, and it game finished 33-0. So then this fella came up to me, and his name was Bill Nolan, who was something to do with the SRU, and I didn't know who it was at the time. He said to me, what games do you normally referee? And I said, well, this is actually the biggest game I've done so far. And he went, not from now on, it won't. I was like, really? And he went, yeah. So I got a word from uh, Martin Hawthorne, who had been looking after us. He said that Bill Nolan had said, you're a good game. So we're going to move you up and then move you up. And then I got moved up again. And then it was like every Friday night, uh, my wife Kay would say to me, where, uh, where are you tomorrow? Oh, I said, I've got my biggest game ever tomorrow. He said, he said that last week. I said, I've said that every week. It just seemed to get progress and progress till eventually I made my Premier One debut. A roller coaster, really. And was that the was that the the biggest game you refereed, Rob? Was Premiership? Yeah, Premiership was uh, my first game live on TV 
was my debut in Premier One. Now we talk about how many times you visit the toilet and how nervous you are, trying to be as polite as I can here. But this was like six, vi <laughs> six visits to this one. And this kept me slim, I'll tell you. It was as light as anything on my feet. So you're wired up to the TV. You're wired up to your assessor from Irvine, Andy Clough. Remember Andy Clough? I do, and I do remember Andy Clough, yeah. And uh, so Andy Clough was my assessor. And I had the TV monitor on my back and another TV radio thing on my back for my touch judges. John Steele was one of them. He was sort of obviously kind of with me quite a lot just to make sure I was doing things okay. And Davey Anderson was on the other side. And the game was going great. And it was 21-0 at halftime to Curry. Now, Curry number four was being a complete pain to me. And he was like at me all the time, all the time. And he obviously thought, this is a fairly new ref. I think I can get under his skin. And it was working. And I got into the changing room at half time and I said to my touch judges, haven't they hold, hold over all the mics so nobody else could hear? And you've got all these packs in your back you've got to run around with. And I said to him, that number four is a complete pain. Now, any excuse you can find for me, we'll get them off. And they're like, okay, we'll work hard. We'll work hard at it. I said, I'll try and keep them on my side, but if you see anything at all, let me know. Kick off second half. The ball catcher went up, caught the ball, and he was taken out in the air by Curry. I said to the touch judge, was it number four? And he went, yes, it was. So I went, brilliant, yellow card. That was the excuse I was waiting for. Off he went. And then Andy Cliff later on, I said, number four said it wasn't him. I says, no, Andy Cliff says, no, no, it was definitely him. Touch judges, yep, it was definitely him. However, Sky Plus had just came out. <laughs> so I came home and a Sky Plus, I rewound it, rewound it. And here it was Curry number five. <laughs> so the following week, I was up at the Curry versus Belrose. And I had found out that Curry had found each other a fiver for yellow cards. So I went into the change room, we always had a big board saying referee meeting at whatever time, into the changing room, went in, we're all in there, more shirts and ties and blazers. Curry, number four, who was the captain, can I have a word? Yeah. Last week, uh, he says, it definitely wasn't me. I said, I believe you got fined uh, a fiver. And he says, I did. I said, how about 250? And I held out 250 for him, for your kitty. And he went, that'll do nicely. <laughs> So that was, my, that was my first game live on the television. So, But everybody seemed to think I did correct, and uh, it turned out it wasn't. Referees are at it, Rab, are they? Oh, like to well. try and get players off. Corrupt, Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> that was obviously the first game. What was what was some of the highlights to that? Because I know, I know you've refereed some fairly big games. You you were refereeing air at the time that they were going for, for League yep. and Cup doubles. Yep. What was what? What would you think would be your, would be your the pinnacle, or what was the what was the best game, even just the best game, the 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 most flowing rugby, yeah, whatever it means to you. Air was always a good place for flowing rugby, and Air versus Heriots was always a really good game. Melrose, I was involved after I did Melrose a few times, but I got involved in the British Irish Cup and the Melrose against Doncaster was a good game and I went up into the changing room to check the boots with the two touch judges and here there was a Dumfries boy playing for Doncaster so when he saw me, Dougie Flocat when he saw me, he came up to me and gave me a big cuddle 
And then the, all the Doncaster players were like, "Oh, this is brilliant! We've got we've got somebody that knows the ref, you know." But, but it turned out Melrose won the game in any case. But uh, but that was one of these moments you think seeing somebody a local face. We talked about earlier on seeing local faces somewhere. I always love to see that to see people in the brilliant places. And that was a good game, that one and um, the Scottish select side, uh, league side against the. It was meant to be an Italian referee, England, Scotland versus England at the uh, air, and the Italian referee pulled up just before the game. So I was obviously AR1, so we stepped into that one. But uh, I think the Italian guy, he, we go out there and we're warming up, and he was incredibly nervous. And then he decided that his hamstring wasn't in great condition. So that was fine. I wasn't caring if it was in great condition or not, because it meant I got to do the game. So. Uh, Moving from them games, what do you call them, the Glasgow games against, I, I went on to touch judging Glasgow versus Saracens was the first game I did, a game live on TV, and Nigel Owens was the, was the referee. Interestingly, Jim Fleming, the former Scottish international referee, was looking at us as a team of three, and uh, which was fine. But the, only, the thing I learned about that game was when, when Nigel Owens shouted to the the first person who arrived at the ruck or the breakdown, no hands, for example. The, the Saracens players then repeated it. Every time someone came to the breakdown, the ref has shouted, no hands. So everybody knew. So in the first half, he, he'd said to me at the start, watch for Saracens, any penalties, let me know at half time." And there was actually only one penalty against Saracens at half time, And that was for somebody being lippy. And he got marched back ten yards, so it wasn't actually anything technical on the on the pitch. And the experience of that that when I went on to coach like the eighteens, that was one point that I said to them boys at breakdown: you've got to talk to everybody. We must talk to each other. And once the referee says something, you must repeat it to everybody. And the discipline they got from that was just amazing. I think the one thing I tried to to have, and I think coming from a, a police background as well, is, is discipline. And I think that if you turn up to a lot of the games, I wasn't a great believer in talking to the teams and saying, talk to the front rows, we'll talk to this, we'll, we'll talk about breakdowns. I've always just said to them, like, you must respond to what I say. And the, whether you think I'm correct or not, as a referee, you when they approach the breakdown, I am telling them from that point earlier on, no hands in the ruck. And that, go, that goes all the way back to a, a coach, one of the first coaches I had at uh, Cumnock, Colin Dow. And Colin Dow, who's just is the president of the West Society just now, he said to me, you must not have any hands in the ruck. And I said to him, why not? And he says, just because you you're not allowed to have hands in the ruck. And I thought, well, it makes the game far more interesting if you're allowed hands in the ruck. But he said, no, you noticed how a lot of people were getting their hands stood on. I said, I did notice that. So uh, from that point onwards, you've, uh, you learn these points and you think, right, we'll take that on. But discipline was, was big for me, whether you said to the teams and then when you go to your my coaching with under-18s or whatever, and listen to the referee and just, just accept it. You probably find that these boys in particular, they grow up and, and they respond. And I'm saying the most important person you must listen to is is the referee, and, and, and you've got to have these moments if you're five points up or three points up with just a few minutes to go, 
specifically saying to the scrum half, listen to the referee. He will tell you when to use it. Leave it till that point. It's always the getting that point across is that they must listen to the ref because at the end of the day, if if you if you don't, then and your discipline goes and you end up with yellow cards and that this Stuart Ray on Saturday was watching that at the end, you know, and the referee's talking to the boys and somebody, you know, knocked it on. It was a bit unfortunate, but you've just got to listen. And that's how I think that game panned out on Saturday. Jumping a wee bit ahead here, but that's how, because the boys were listening to the referee, but they were keeping their own sides, your back foot, the ref says back foot, you stay back foot. Don't try and creep forward because the ref has told you to stay in the back foot. And it's with things like that that's, that wins games. And uh, these games that are so close, and, and if you don't keep your discipline, then you, you, will, you will lose. It was always one of my mantras, Rab, just going back to that point, but whenever I was coaching teams as well, like the referee, the referee will tell you what he's looking at every phase of the game. Like the majority of referees will give you the verbal warning first and then they'll penalise you after that. If you don't heed the warning of the ref, that he's basically telling you, if you don't want penalised, follow this instruction. And all you have to do is, as you say, listen, let the rest of your team know that, and the game will go much, much easier. I always said, never the referee never beats the team. The team always beats themselves. So you can never blame a ref. Right, we need to get your views. I'm sure you've been asked this probably... A thousand times, but you know we don't have many referees that we chat to, especially on the podcast. So it's always great. I've had a lot of people come up to me and ask about the about the tackle height and if we're going to have someone, you know, on to chat a little bit more about it because they enjoyed it when we've talked about it before. What are your views for moving forward and how rugby are going to adapt? Personally, I think if you've got if you're practicing your tackling and your tackle is waist and below. There used to be a certain... There was a person I remember at Annan who used to tackle everybody round the ankle. Round the ankles all the time, and they went straight down. And I was like, that is just the best. It's Sometimes it's laziness when uh, people are reaching over and like the old, what we call a seatbelt tackle. Now, now there's, no, there's no any need for that now. And I think it's got to go back to the coaching... It's got to go back to the, 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 the wet, miserable nights on a Tuesday, Thursday on the plane, on the, the practice pitch and the training pitches, tackling all the time. And the tackling has got to be lower. I think the stats are there for injuries, the concussions, the neck injuries. They're all caused, are they by the high tackle? Maybe it's the scrums, maybe it's the high tackle. But I think everybody's working on their own thing. And if we work hard on the tackle being lower, I think they're calling it the belly tackle. But I think if it, your coaches, if we can just push and push to get the tackles lower. I, I think I remember from my old school days, old Mr. John Boyd used to say, nobody can run without their legs. And many people do see the bigger guys that are... I remember refereeing an under-14 game at Dumfries a couple of years ago. And the biggest guy in the pitch had somebody jumped on his back, had, had five or six hanging off him, and he's trailing them all along. But the team in the opposition, if somebody had just tackled them around his ankles, all this was so unnecessary. So it got to a point where, as, as a referee, 
in these games you tend to coach more, try and no use your whistle as much, but you're coaching them, saying to them, why why don't you just tackle them, just tackle them around the ankle, instead of trying to get them around the the waist or even try to jump on his back or it just seems so unnecessary. So it's not a new thing telling people, well, we need to lower the tackle height. Because when, even when I was at school, that's what I'm saying, we were told they can't run without their leg. And I think that's the way we've got to do it, is everybody's just got to get their tackle lower, reduce the penalty count. How many times do we say, right, I'm playing advantage, seat belt tackle, high tackle. And the kids are watching it on the television and they're still, they, I watched the Glasgow game the other night and it was like, how many penalties were for high tackle? And they're they're professional people who practice these tackles all the time and they're still getting it wrong. And the kids are watching this all the time and they've got to, it's got to start from there. And if these coaches are saying, right, we've got to work high, hard and we're high tackles, getting the tackles reduced, kids will follow on. Rob, how have things changed for you between when you started refereeing and now? You said, you know, you mentioned there that people often change, you know, start to coach more instead of using your whistle more. What changes have you gone through in your in your refing career? I think there's absolutely no doubt that the higher level you referee, the less you need to coach. So you're talking about children, youth rugby, girls rugby, ladies rugby. And I think if you had to blow your whistle at some of these levels for, for every offence, you'd wear your whistle out. So the higher the level you go, and I think that as from a from an assessor point of view, the assessor would say you're maybe coaching too much. These people are at this level, and that you shouldn't maybe be coaching as much. And that in that particular game I mentioned earlier on, Curry against Hawks that night, that the assessor said to me, "You say please and thank you too much," and I was like, "Really?" So to me, people were were doing the correct things. And for me to reward them by saying, well played, thanks very much. Good good listening. Thanks for doing that. And I always thought that was a great thing. Players thought, oh, the referees just thanked me. That's great. But the higher the level, the less you need to do that. If you speak to youths and, and girls and ladies rugby, you speak to them, coach them about a particular thing. They're going to remember that. And and if they don't, if they do it again and again, then you have to say, well, I'm going to have to penalise you. I've told you already about this and whatever. But generally, you find that most people do listen and they appreciate the, that part of the coaching. And, and if it gets too much, then you have to stop. If, if it's not dangerous, we're playing on. Everything's got to be safety, of course. And anything happens, we've got to reward them. And, and that's why I get back to the... And that comes back to, from uh, getting tutored right at the start from John. They say that you know people like to be rewarded, and uh, and I think generally if you're if you're nice, your voice is so important, and and it's not just your the way you say it. I think it's got to be so varied, and I think that's what I try and pass on to new referees now. If you just go along like white noise, you've got to vary your voice and raise your voice or lower your voice, and it's massive. It's massive. Rob, could you tell us a little bit about the the rugby society? Because a lot of obviously a lot of or almost everyone that watch listens to this podcast are not referees. 
nor was I myself, but recently I did the did the level one refereeing. And the thing that they told us there is is how big a community and how close a community the West of Scotland Referee Society is. Um, and I think people are often quite interested to hear that that, that they are so close. Um, it really is quite a big thing and, and it's a great community. So is that something you'd, you'd agree with? Is that something you can expand on for, for the listeners? Yeah, I heard Craig mention the myself and they mentioned Jake Wilson and there's a lot of the boys, a lot of these people now on that West Society that, that run the whole thing now are all probably, we're all best mates now and I think it's 12 of us all went out to the beach rugby so we've we've bonded, like I say I've been there 10 times and most of the guys have been there 10 or maybe even more so they're the massive perks at the end of the season And but the people, you've got to start at the start and gradually work your way in. You had where Martin Hawthorne's at the start, who was uh, it was great for me. John McLaughlin, who is uh, head of the, the coaching side of things. And they have these committee meetings and the amount of people that's in the West Society, I think it's more than anyone else. But you look at all the names that's on there and everybody joins, we have meetings. It's a good chance to, to speak to people. And uh, I, I now go and see well this season I've went out and saw two or three of these younger referees that are uh, coming through and they're a lot younger now than when I started I'd played right up till I was I think I was 38 but a lot of these referees now are in their teens however these people I'll give them my number and, and they'll go and do another game and I'll get a call later that night saying that I just wanted to run something past you I had a red card today so there's this relationship that, that you can get with new referees and someone that obviously thinks, well, I can trust him and I can just chat to him and I'm on my way home from a game. It's, something's going through your mind. But we're all to, we're all can do that. The amount of people that's on the society, as I said, the, the chaps I mentioned earlier on, but there's, there's loads of them. We've, we've got a, a committee. Everybody maybe takes on a role of looking after three or four referees and everybody's different, all the different characters, uh, all come from different walks of life. I was fortunate, I think, that I came from the sort of police side of, of things. So if, if you're up the street on, on a Saturday night, you're not going to take any nonsense for people. Can, is that a transferable skill to, to the pitch? Sometimes it is, I think. But all the, the people in the West Society, they come from all sorts. There's, there's fire people, police people, teachers, down to a boy I was looking after last season as, as a farmer through it at Les Walt. So that's the range of people that uh, that we're dealing with. And uh, the society itself encourages you to come along, tea, coffees and sandwiches, and anybody wants to chat about whatever. And everybody's available. So I think that's a good thing, that just to make a bond with everyone. And uh, it's, it seems to work. And it worked, worked well for me uh, when I first started ref 23 seasons ago and that's how it started with me and I can see how that's just continuing and it works so so why why change it do you think there are enough people young people or actually anybody really getting involved in in refereeing today have you seen a, a good increase of people coming in wanting to pick up the whistle have you had a lot of people to bring under your wing what's the what's the kind of scope of how many people want to get into this game because I think a lot of people don't want to be the one behind the whistle because they see it as a bit scary or that you know the crowds can get on top of them but you're absolutely correct with that 
I think the likes of Craig there, Craig McCann, for example, was ideal because he comes from a teaching background. He's already got the voice. He's already uses the whistle. So when I refereed him at Annan, it was the natural, most natural progression for somebody like that. And he's not alone there. There's two or three others I can pick out and say, you'd be perfect at this. So now we're looking at... I was always looking out for new referees when I was... See who would try and referee the game. Because that's what I was like when I was at Shire. He tried to referee the game and somebody approached me to say, I think you'd be better at refereeing. <laughs> and, that, and that's how it works. And so... This year, actually, I was at the Tens tournament at Stewartry. I went there just to watch it, but I wasn't so enthusiastic about picking out refs. I just went along and just for the day because it was a beautiful day in the sunshine. But I was drawn to two young referees that were there, and I thought, oh, they've got potential. So I approached them and got their details and uh, got them signed up to, to the West Society. And I've been to see them again twice after that and uh, it's nice to see that they're actually progressing and that they, they gave me a call to see how they're getting on so if I can if I can down in this neck of the woods down here can identify three or four people that no longer want to play because they've maybe had an injury I'm always at people who are injured to say well what are you going to do to get back into it you want to stay involved so why don't you referee you know I'll come along and watch you and uh, give you some pointers, and you've got to go and enjoy them. One or two people are not so happy because they say, oh, I don't really like it because you've got to travel away on your own. But I, I don't really know what you can do about that, whether you take somebody with you. Or, I know there was a young fella come down to Annan to do the one of the Annan games this year. He actually travelled down with his dad. He did the game, and his dad just stayed at the side and just watched it and was there to support him. That, that was sometimes a difficult thing because because you're so far away, you're travelling to a game and it's it's your whole day. That that could be a problem. I find that you, you tell them these problems as well. You know, you think that, OK, I've travelled, I left home at 10 o'clock to travel to, to referee a game in, in Edinburgh or Kirkcaldy or even up to Aberdeen at one time, you know, and it's, you travel, you do travel the, the world, but I'll just tell them, just think of the expenses. I'm sure it'll be fine. You could, of course, Rab, tell them that there's a great podcast they could listen to on their, on their travels. Give the season gallery yeah. rugby podcast a listen. Absolutely, this season, John. It's a pity it wasn't available. Uh, I've had to put up with Stuart Cosgrove and Tom Cowan for the, all them years. You know, oh, we should have done it earlier. Definitely, we could have, we could have put you through some put you put you through some journeys, Rob. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I think you're doing a great job, and it's it's something different. And obviously, that's what we're all into. And and it's now coming to a stage for me, anyways, that. What are we going to do next? And uh, I'm trying to get involved in a bit of the coaching, but uh, just being a, a bit far away from where it's all going on and maybe I'll take a more of a handle on what's going on down here. I think it was a local course recently at Dumfries, which was uh, very well attended. And I think it's looking pretty healthy from uh, from the, the referee's point of view and certainly the coaches that are involved and they all seem to be quite excited. I'm still part of the West, but I've certainly been asked to go and join the, the SRU side of things to do more assessing rather than than coaching, which seems to be a slightly different. However, that's uh, one thing I would, when I first started, was because I knew, I didn't know really who a lot of people were. When, so when you go over to the borders and you don't really know who's coming to coach you, you knew the name or saw the name, 
So I would always say to them, can you tell me a bit about yourself? How, how did you get to this point? How were you the assessor? Tell me a bit about your referee. And because then, because you're being assessed by somebody, and I was thinking, well, I don't actually think you've got as, you're, you're not refereeing as high as I am. So how can you assess me type thing, you know? But I always love to have these conversations with the, the guys and they say, well, I can only take you up to a certain point and someone else would come along. But somebody like say, Jim Fleming pops into the room and say, well, I'm going to watch you today. You're thinking, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. But uh, enjoy all these games. And, and as you say, the higher the game, the less coaching you need to do. But uh, and the games are far more enjoyable. Travel the length and breadth. And, and one particular uh, time, I actually went with under-18s to Australia. And then when I arrived there, uh, Martin Hawthorne's uh, relation Martin Martin was in the Navy in Sydney. And uh, so he met me at the backpacks and says, I've got some games for you to referee. And I was like, really? I ended up refereeing 11 games. They, they actually took me in by truck to some games. And actually, one time they flew me in a wee four-seater aeroplane, which wasn't a great experience. They flew me across to, up to do another game. And they gave us some Scotland kit to, to go and do these games. And that was just... Treated like royalty, and it's just fantastic. So my message would be is that to referee games, you see the world. And uh, doing the, I did the semi-final and the Niagara Regional Cup final in Toronto. And then they said, could you stay till Saturday and do the other semi-final? I said, yeah, I'm here for a couple of weeks. So they said, could you do that semi-final? And then could you do the final the following week? I ended up doing the three games, you know, and... Uh, but they presented you with the match ball. I think my, my loft's about falling to, falling to pieces with all the amount of stuff I've collected up from these games, you know. But to, to get to a great level and then to see the world is... You couldn't do that as a football ref, I don't think. But as, as a rugby referee, I think it's just, just been marvellous. Rob, you mentioned a few people there that, you know, kind of got you into refereeing and we've talked a little bit about you know, potentially taking some other young people that are getting into it now under your wing. Who are the kind of names that come to your head when when you think about your career, especially refereeing and, and how far you've come and who who really had a impact on you to to get to where you are today? Two of the boys in particular, when I first started refereeing, I seemed to get Irvin quite a lot. Maybe because no one else would want you to go there. Maybe the Muir brothers were there. That's why they didn't want to go. But the uh, the two boys in the front row, Gordon Brown was a particularly great influence. But his sidekick, who took me to the side and gave me some pointers, was by his nickname, Murph. And John will know him better. But Murph took me to the side after one game in Irvine. And he said to me, that what position did you play? I said, oh, I was in the backs. He says, well, there's a couple of decisions you made today didn't have any material effect on the game, but you did guess them. I could tell you guessed them. And I was like, what made you say that? He says, because you gave one decision to them, then you evened it up by giving the one to us. But he says to me, you have got an amazing potential. This is what you need to look for in the front row stuff. And then between him and the I took us outside. They had finished. They were shirt and ties on, and they were demonstrating by someone putting the ball in. And they, they actually took time out to do this. 
and I never forgot it. And it, they were brilliant. And every time I went back, I would say, right, I'm working on this and working on that. And they always would ask me. And then I became quite friendly with Gordon because Murph sadly, sadly died. I think he was out running or something. And, and that was a real shame. But Gordon keeps in touch. And uh, every time I used to go and referee him at Carrick, he was, he was always the nicest. Treated you with the massive respect. I think when they got their massive run to Murrayfield, one game in particular, they, they got to the semi-final, which I went down to Carrick to, to referee. And it was a really close game. I'm just trying to think off the top of my head who that was against. The border side. And they, they'd won it the year before. And they they came through having been unbeaten for 58 games or something. Eventually, Carrick won that game to get back to Murrayfield. But that was uh, that was a massive game. They put a touch judge on with me that day that hadn't a touch judge before. Just a young fella. And now this is a way of getting rid of touch judges. Eventually, it was so close to the pitch and the, and the supporters from the other team were right close up. And then when there was a try in the corner, I had to go to him and say, was that a try? And he went, actually, I don't really know because... And he was physically shaking because the people were so close behind him. And I'm saying to him, well, I think there's a foot line on the line. I'm sure he's in touch. Go back to your line and put your flag up. And I will say, no try. From that point on, Gordon, Gordon was just brilliant. Thought, and the way he looked, he went behind that touch judge fella and they sort of kept everybody back from him and gave him some space. And uh, I thought that was a great thing to do. And also, uh, someone else that's no longer with us is, is Jim Rennie. That trip we mentioned of going to Australia, Jim organised that with Doug Murray. Jim was just brilliant with the boys. He, he had a role of uh, coaching right throughout the region, always very calm, loved his beer, loved his stories. And uh, he, was, he was a massive influence as well. And uh, it's a right, uh, right shame that uh, diabetes so I sort of got a hold of him at the end. But Sadly, very much missed as as Jim Rennie, but the boys at uh, the boys at Irvin were, were were got me on the on the on the correct path for sure. Well, Rob, I've got to say thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I often I often say that, well, when me and John are talking about who to get on the pod, we try and get as many different people as possible because, of course, there's so many things to talk about in Dumfries and Galloway rugby and, and it's been fantastic to have you on and get a different perspective yet again from a, from another referee and another good source of, of Dumfries and Galloway. Great stories, great memories. Hope you enjoyed yourself today and hopefully we can get you on again in the future. Brilliant. Thank you for the invite, boys. Good luck. I think, John, just as we begin part two, maybe our... Uh, our most recent disclaimer can go out. It's nothing like what we had to do the first time with, with Bamba. That will always and forever remain our first disclaimer and it will always be in Bamba's name, which I think we find is hilarious. But just to say that, of course, this next part of the segment is very stewartry orientated because of what happened at the weekend. It's the only game coming up this weekend. Yes, we're both involved at stewartry. That is not the intention of this podcast. It is the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. It just so happens that at this point in the season, Stuartry are the only one playing any rugby. So It's also fair to say, Ross, that people logging into this week's podcast will know full well that there was a fairly 
historic game that taken part of the weekend and this weekend is also a pretty big weekend for, for Stewartry. So I think they'll give us the, the little bit of self indulgence. They'll they'll allow us the glory to, to big the club up, knowing fine well that we, we do generally spread it around when we when we can. We'll come on to the fixture this weekend because as you say it's and as we said to John, it is quite hard, John Pickin that we had on the other week, it is quite hard to think about this game because I think a lot, almost this game gets a little bit muddied, muddied down because of how big it is playing at Murrayfield and the first time in 21 years and bringing back a shield and community day and everything. But actually, this weekend is huge as well. It's a chance of getting into nationals. And as I say, I think that gets a little bit cloudy. But we'll come on to that in, in a second. We were both there at Murrayfield along with a hell of a lot of other people. I think that's the first thing I want to say. I've been at Murrayfield hundreds of times in my life and I found it so odd but so amazing to be walking around and all you could see was red and black. Getting the wind the whole day, the atmosphere, the kids, all there. What a day. Yeah, mate, it was, it truly was incredible to see. I had a conversation earlier on in the week and I, we reckon there must have been easily about five, six hundred people there just from the Stewartry. East Bride had probably the same on on their side, to be fair to them. But of course we were on we were on our side of the, the halfway line. They were on their side of the halfway line. And it was really good, really good spirits. But yeah, to see that amount of people, sometimes you kind of forget just how much of a community the rugby community is until you get those special events that happen once in a in a player's lifetime. I played my whole rugby career and I, I only managed to get to Murrayfield once uh, for a for an under sixteen Scottish Cup final. So it does happen as once in a lifetime for, for players. The the stories behind some of the lads as well, you know, Stephen McCullough gets gets mentioned quite a lot on the on the podcast for his playing, but he was one of the ball boys in that Stuart Trey team that went and and lost, unfortunately, that, that final at Murrayfield against Kirkcaldy. And there he was, full circle. I mean, I'm sure Steve will hold his hands up because, as we said, John Pickin tried to guess his age and, and, and got it horribly wrong. But you won't mind me saying, towards the end of his career, and he's getting to, to run out of Murrayfield to go full circle. You know, as you say, the, the event, being on the main pitch, having the kids all there, comfortably 100, 150 kids there all watching guys from their area guys who live in the same village as them or the village just next door to them and they're playing at Murrayfield in the National Stadium it was just incredible there only is to my knowledge I might be might be completely wrong here but to my knowledge there's three clubs who have, who have managed to get to Murrayfield and win Annan being one of them. Dumfries won the, their cup, their national cup, but I don't think that was at Murrayfield. I think it was at Preston Pans. I'm not 100% sure on that. And now, obviously, Stewartry winning, winning their cup. You started to mention it there, John. We've got to talk about the impact that it has on these kids. You know, it's been 
absolutely amazing. You and I both know we've done a bit of coaching in the schools, how excited they've been, you know, both at the club and at the schools in and around Dumfries and Galloway. And, you know, I was there today, I was at some of the primary schools and, and they were saying, the kids were running up to me and saying that they got, telling me who in the first 15 they got high fives from when, when the bus arrived back at Greenlaw and there's the boys that have won their, you know, the signed match balls and girls that have been there for the mascots and and as you say, 150 of them there. You don't quite realise the impact that we as people that play at Stuart Tree or have anything to do with Stuart Tree actually have on these kids. It is like we are the the big rugby players to them and you know they they came out in their hundreds to to support us and that was definitely felt I think. Yeah, I think sometimes it's difficult to to comprehend. It was something that I always said to the boys whenever I was coaching them. And every team is the same. It's not just your trace. It's every team. But when you when you go out and you represent your region, whether it's Dumfries, whether it's Annan, whether it's Newton Stewart, whether it's Shire, whether it's Stuart Tray, you are the best 15 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, whatever, whatever squad size it is, you are the best players that that region has to offer on that weekend. And sometimes we think, you know, when you do the league and it's the week in, week out sort of sort of stuff that, you know, that it's, you just take it for granted that you are because you generally are one of those guys. You're just like you were just normal guys that are playing, but you are the best rugby players that that region has to offer, and you don't realise the impact that you sometimes have on those on those kids who who see you going out there and playing as as sort of as Rab says, not all superheroes wear capes, and to someone you are you you're potentially their hero, and to inspire that generation to come on by just doing simple little things like going down and visiting the mini session and, and doing a little bit of refereeing first team boys, you know, speaking to the kids and, and knowing who they are and who they've played has a massive, massive effect on on some of these kids. Like obviously I'm I'm in the background, you know, so I get to see the, the little individual stories. And there's parents posting on there saying you know, I've never seen my kid up at this time in the morning. They don't get up at this time in the morning for school this early, never mind anything else. And they're, the kids are up, they're dressed, they're ready to go, they're champing at the bit to try and get out the door. And we were leaving it, the buses were leaving at what, half five, six o'clock in the morning? There was kids who were walking from Castle Douglas out to the rugby club, which is a fair steg. You know, you're talking a good half hour there. So they're up at five, half five to make their own way across to to the rugby club to get on a bus to go to Murrayfield. It's just incredible, the the background of it. When you hear the little stories and the snippets, it's amazing to see just how much of an impact a, a senior rugby team can have on, on their community. Yeah, as you say, there are some heroes to these kids. Uh, I think Davy Armstrong will definitely be getting that hero tag quite a lot, not only for the way he played, not only that he's man of the match, but once we got back to Greenlaw, the chat has been that even after all the festivities on the bus and after the game and, you know, in the in the clubhouse with the Shield and the whole community there having a great time, Davey was outside kicking a ball about with the young ones. So, you know, work never stops for Davey, we know that, but 
things like that are absolutely priceless for the kids and the community as a whole. I think it was a, a fantastic day, fantastic few days for anyone that was in the team. We had a had a barbecue at the Pickens after the day after, so Sunday. Thank God it was Bank Holiday Monday for I think most of the people involved. But yeah, what what a weekend all round, honestly. Historic and I can only imagine what it feels like for people that have been kicking around Stewardship for a hell of a long time. As as everyone very well knows by now, I've not been here long. Half a year, something like that. And you know, I couldn't I couldn't sit down at Murrayfield. It was impossible to sit in my seat. I had to stand and I've enjoyed absolutely everything that's happened since that first whistle kicked off. So I can't even imagine what it means to to everyone else, to be honest, because it's been a magical weekend. Yeah, I also had the, the great pleasure of making me feel old because half of those first team boys I've coached when they were when they were in primary school. And I was like, well, that's that's nice. TJ, David Maxwell, Andrew Pickin. Some of these lads, Archie Nicholson, Fraser Forsyth, Jason Forsyth, coached them all at primary school. And now, now they're running out of Murrayfield, lifting the cup for Stewartry. It's uh, phenomenal, phenomenal. Do we want to talk about the game? Yeah, just before we move on to to the game this weekend, we should actually mention we haven't even said what the score was and how we found the game and and everything like that. So, twenty two fifteen. In the end, to Stuartry, I think the best way pretty much everyone has summed it up, to be honest, John, is that old cliche, a game of two halves, isn't it? It absolutely was. Stuartry got off to an absolute flyer, I thought. They they looked composed, they looked you know, fast, they looked strong, they were moving the ball from, from touchline to touchline. Every carry was, was sort of making ground. East Kilbride really struggled to get out of their out of their half that first half hour of the game, and I actually thought your Stuart Troop was probably going to run away with the game, but then there was a, a little change in the tide. So Fraser Forsyth got his first try on the on the left hand side of the pitch. Some lovely hands. Highlights are available on on Scottish Rugby's social media pages because they highlighted it as a fantastic try. It scored over in the corner. We then on to the other side of the pitch and Fraser got another score on that side after a, a John Picken I mean I don't know how much he knew about it I'm sure he's going to tell everybody that it was absolutely planned and he knew exactly where Fraser was but getting bundled in to touch the old round the back pass and, and it landed straight into Fraser Forsyth's hands and he dove over for a second try and you thought to yourself oh Fraser could score a hat trick at Murrayfield how special would that be and then the, we were going over for a third try. TJ got hold of the ball, made a great break, broke through some tackles. And just as he was going to go down with the ball, their guy's arm got caught in his arm, I think, and, and it dislodged the ball. And from there, it sort of gave his bride a glimmer of hope. They then put in a, a great bit of play that got them back up into the Stuart 22. And first time they were in there, they came away with... We came away with the, the points with the try with the crossfield kick, which was just an incredible little piece of skill from their fullback who'd actually had a pretty good game the whole game. And that put their winger through in the in the corner. And that just just before half time that, that gave them the that gave them the belief. And Stuart almost I don't 
I don't know, but it almost looked like Stewartry then tried to play shut up shop rugby in a way, where they they didn't quite. I don't know whether it was tiredness because obviously it was a big pitch and and they were maybe a little bit caught on the hoop. But Isco Bride came back in that second half, got the wind between uh, the wind under their sails and just really took it to the Stewartry and really put under pressure. It was the ten, last ten minutes of the game was. It was so nerve-wracking from the side of the pitch because you know Stuartry want to run the ball, but you also you're sitting there thinking to yourself, "Well, maybe they're they're trying to play to wind the clock down," and then they take a tap penalty from inside their own half and and try and run it, and you were just going, "What is going on here?" And then Isco Bride came back, got hold of the ball, back down into twenty-two, and and were you know really pounding on the Stuartry's line, and as Rab said in his his little bit where he let slip some of the details of the game but Thomas McLean ended up getting his, his yellow card slightly unfortunate I thought as well you know like, but it is a, a hand and a downward motion you're always running the risk with that down to 14 men but with 10 minutes to go and Isco Bride are you know banging on the door to, to try and even the game up and get a, get a draw and force it to you know injury time and Fair play to the Stuart Ray, they managed to, to hold out, stay on the right side of the referee, come the end. There was no more yellow cards after Thomas's. I thought we were pretty lucky to get away with that. And then victory, victory was there. It really was a game of two halves. You thought Stuart were going to walk away, East Bride, credit to them, came back in that second half and really put it to them. But we they held strong the lads and came away with a victory, which is all you can ask for them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think the first half was fantastic and that was testament from just the bus journey I was going to say you know for for people that might be wondering how how the team were feeling on the way up we you know we met at 5 30 or we left at 5 30 in the morning maybe a bit after waiting for the bus there were a few a few jitters about maybe having to take a hell of a lot of cars up because the bus wasn't there by the when it was supposed to leave but anyway I thought the bus was brilliant, not just the way back, but <laughs> the way that everyone kind of conducted themselves, I think that was taken into the first half is what I'm trying to say. You know, I've been involved in big games before and it's you always kind of see how the players are reacting in the build-up to kick-off. But the crack on the bus, even at 5.30 in the morning, right the way to Murrayfield was fantastic, but when it was time to get off, off the bus, get the kit in, you know, game faces were on, everyone was in the zone, everyone was ready. And as I say, I think that was taken into the first half. As you say, John, we can't take it away from East Kilbride. They, f- they really, really did well to come back into that game because it could have been it could have been dead and buried very easily, you know, if, if things had fallen differently. East Kilbride could have been out of the contest. But, you know, to stick in on such a big stage in front of that many people to get your claws back in the game and drag yourself to to almost stealing it at the end, as we say, we were we were very thankful that we got the win in the end. But you know they could have could have stuck in. They were one converted try from taking it to extra time, and they had a man up. So credit to East Kilbride, but also credit to Stewartry for sticking in as well and and making it such a great weekend. I think it was as well one of the better games of that of that uh, Silver Saturday. You know, I've watched a few highlights, a few of the other games, 
And it it might be because obviously there's a vested interest there. It might be slightly biased, but I think in the whole, everyone pr- could probably agree that there was some some flashes of fantastic rugby being being played. Now, John, we're hoping maybe so this time, this weekend, not as close. I would very much appreciate it if it wasn't as close or as tense as the weekend just passed, but we're hoping for another win because we're hoping to do a league and cup double, shield double. Not in the way of winning the league, of course, but there's still the chance in this promotion playoff this Saturday to get into Nat 4 against Ellen. You said in your little intro that there's there's probably the cup kind of overshadows this this league or, or muddies it slightly. I think now that the weekend has happened and we've been successful there, I think everyone is now fully focused on this on this promotion because that has been the goal for the last three years. That is what the club has been working towards this whole time is, is winning West 1, which is the most difficult regional league to get out of and get into the national leagues um, and add some variety to the to the teams that Stewartry are, are playing. I don't think there's, there's any um, disrespect to the teams that are in, in West 1. We've thoroughly enjoyed our time in West 1, but it almost gets a little bit stale when it's the same same faces. This one up, one down promotion is is really difficult. Um and I think a lot of clubs will probably agree with that statement. So to get promoted into the national leagues into this new national four was always the objective of the season. And now this is the this is the game that's going to be the deciding that. So I don't want to put any extra pressure on our lads. But this is the game that we need to make sure that we're up for and we win and we put in a full 80-minute performance for. And Sandy will know that. David Borland will be telling the lads that. John Packin will be telling the lads that. This is the game. And they're against Ellen now. Ellen finished second in their league, which was the Cali Region 1, which is the same division as Dunfermline. So Stewartry have already played Dunfermline in their cup, but it was also a tight game. It was very narrow margins. And Ellen are in the same boat as what East Co-Bride were, where they, they've beaten Dunfermond once and lost once. We were very close to Dunfermond. So this is not going to be an easy game. These guys finished second in the league for a reason, because they're a very good team. So this is going to be a tough one. We don't know much about Ellen. We imagine that they're going to be a big physical side. Dunfermline wanted to move the ball around as well. I imagine Ellen will play a similar style. The two of them will probably be the exact the exact match. Being as it's in a neutral venue also adds a totally different characteristic to it as well because Stewartry played Dunfermline at Greenlaw. So there was that added bus journey for the Dunfermline team to take into account. Both teams are going to meet centrally at West of Scotland. They're they're going to play the game out there at a neutral venue. So that evens it up even more. We don't know how it's going to play out. We hope 
that'll be a good game of rugby. We're obviously hoping that Stuartry win and get promotion. But this is this is the game of the season. The cup is the nice cherry on top. The shield winning the shield trophy is the nice cherry, but primary goal was always promotion. And that's mission promotion is is odd now this weekend. Yeah, definitely. I'd just like to say that when I you know, when I say that the shield somewhat overshadows this, I think it does, but definitely not for us. You know, for anyone listening, it is I think it's important to stress that we know as the coaches and as as the team how important this game is. We've had a fantastic weekend. Friday we've got our club dinner awards ceremony. I think we'll have huge confidence going into this Saturday and and we know how important it is, especially for for everything that we've worked for this season. You know, we, we felt like we could have won the league. We were outbeaten by a by a better team in Garnock this year, but we still deserve that promotion and we've just got to go get it now. And as you say, we really don't know much about this game, by all accounts, from everything you've just said as well there, John. It's, it's probably going to be a cracker. I think so. I think it'll be, it'll be the game of the season. Because this is it. It's, it's, it's knockout footy at a neutral venue for promotion international league, which both teams will have been working on for three, four or five years. As I say, the cup, the cups are one off. It's a special, special, absolutely special. There's a luck element to it. There's a, the luck of the draw. There's things that will transpire. But the league seasons, the graft, the day, the weekend, weekend graft, and this is the playoff will be massive. This will be. There was a weekend to remember. Last weekend, this weekend will be another weekend to remember, and I think we go into it. Listen. We go into it in a good place. I think if we'd lost Murrayfield, that we would have been having a different conversation today. But I think going into, off the back of a win, we're on the, the crest of the wave. We need to ride that out for the week and make sure that we, we land we land where we need to land come Saturday at five o'clock. So, well done to Stuart Tree. Good luck to Stuart Tree. And of course, thank you very much to our guest this afternoon, Rab McHenry. As I said before, always fantastic to have someone else on the pod, isn't it, John? Someone, everyone that we get on, as I say, is different, but Rab's got a lot of stories to tell and a bit more of a different path to to tell us about. And it's always great to have, it's always great to chat to him. Yeah, he's he's such a good lad, and as he says, you know the people the people that he meets. I, I remember Rab refereeing me. Obviously, he mentioned quite a few times that I'm originally from Irvine. Yes, I am originally an Irvine lad, um, but I knew Rab when I was when I was a young, eighteen, nineteen year old kid playing senior rugby out of Irvine and having those conversations and and. So I remember Murph and Gordon Brown was in the same team as, as me and listen, they'll talk to anybody about scrummaging. If if you give them an in, they'll be there for three weeks telling you every every little trick of the trade. Um and they're incredible people. But you know, I've known Rab basically my whole rugby career, um, as a, as a senior. 
and he's he's incredibly good as a referee. Um, he's one of those guys that you can approach. Like he, I keep in touch with him regularly. I used to message him, and I used to be that guy that messaged him and asked him, "Rab, what's happening with this law? What's happening with that law? If if this scenario happens in a game, what's?" And he's always keen to come back. Craig McCann as well. Literally, when I played with Moffat the during the season this week this year. There was a question, there was a, a thing came up and I wasn't sure and I messaged Craig and he gave me the answers. Listen, if there's no referees, there's no games and these guys are invaluable and Rab is such a good guy. Um, legend of Dumfries and Gallery Rugby, you know, he referees everywhere and every time he referees, the players know what they're getting. They're getting a good referee that enjoys the game and, and wants you to enjoy the game. So it's, it's great having him on. It was a great chat to him. Always good chatting to Rab. Enjoying my time. Before we go, I have to make a special a special mention. Because we don't we had gone on sort of on hiatus a little bit with it, but we brought back the score predictor the last couple of weeks. And this week we did it for obviously the Stewartry game. And massive shout out to Betty, who plays in the Sirens for the uh, for the Stewartry. She guessed the final score of 22-14. Close. Everyone had predicted a Stewartry win, which is awesome. Um, But Betty just about got the score pretty much bang on. And she mentioned, she also mentioned to me at Murrayfield, she leaned over because she was sitting just behind me and she said, by the way, John, just so you know, I put that in the score predictor. If you don't shout me out on the podcast, we'll be having words. So there you go, Betty. There is your shout out on the podcast. Well done. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a like and review on our social medias. Our Facebook page is Dumfries and Galloway Rugby Podcast. Our Instagram and Twitter handles are DG Rugby Pod. We also have the Score Predictor, which we run weekly, which will be on our social media accounts. And once again, thank you for any support that you offer the pod. It really does help us spread the word of rugby in Dumfries and Galloway across the country.